Would you please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 130? As we come now to the preaching of the Word of God, Psalm 130. A few years ago in 2017, so many of us celebrated the 500th, the 500th anniversary of that moment in history when Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, a moment that is often looked at as sort of the, the launching point, the initiation of the Reformation. And this date, of course, is important to us because we call ourselves Reformed Baptists, and we are a part of that Reformed tradition, that Reformation of the church. And although Martin Luther's theses at that time were not what we might call full-blown Reformation theology, they were an initiation, they were a call to rethinking, a call to scholarly consideration and debate as the the theology and the practice of the church were being reevaluated by Martin Luther and so many others after him. But think about for a moment with me that the name Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. There is a, a form of protest uh, as well as a reformation. And the Protestant Reformation was saying things are wrong in the church. What is being taught and what is being practiced, there are things that are wrong. There's a, a protest. We just read this morning, or we heard this morning, a, uh, in a, a short exposition from the Westminster Larger Catechism of the Second Commandment, which was very important to the Protestant Reformation. These, these ways in which we are being told to worship, uh, this is not what God has commanded. This is contrary to God's word. That's a form of protest. But it wasn't just a protest. It was also an attempt at reformation. Let's fix this. Let's do it right in the church. And so what Martin Luther and so many others wanted was not to instantly jump ship and run away, but rather they wanted to reform the church of Jesus Christ. Now, one might say, but what difference did it really make in the life of the Christian? Martin Luther was a priest who had been educated, so we might put him in a, in a category of the uh, somewhat academic Christianity or trained Christianity. And we might say, okay, yes, let the pastors debate or let the doctors debate or let the priests debate or let the professors debate, and they're going to debate this and that, and we're going to have catechisms and confessions, and, but what difference does it actually make for the Christian that comes to the church and lives the Christian life day by day. Of course, the, the parish priest or the pastor is also living the Christian life, but, but for those who are living an ordinary Christian life, a holy life unto God, loving their families, doing their work every day, not involved in, in formal ministry or, or educated ministry, what, what difference does it really make for such persons? Well, Psalm 130 was an important psalm for Martin Luther, and many of the versions of it that we sing in our hymnals are from Martin Luther's uh, rendition of it. And Psalm 130 gives us an excellent passage of Scripture to see more clearly what the Reformation, one of the things that the Reformation really gave back 
to Christians and to the church. So what we're going to do is we're going to pause that question, the question of what difference did the Reformation make in the life of the believer. We're going to study Psalm 130 for the sermon, and at the conclusion of the sermon, we're going to come back to that question and say, in light of what the scriptures teach in Psalm 130, we can see more clearly what difference the Reformation made. So the point of the sermon is not to better understand the Reformation. The point of the sermon is to understand Psalm 130. But it illustrates for us, a good illustration of how to appreciate this psalm comes from the difference that the Reformation made. So let's read Psalm 130 and then consider three simple points for an outline. Psalm 130, this is the very word of God. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities." We're going to study three simple points from this psalm. And the first one is the promise of pardon for those who plead for mercy. The promise of pardon for those who plead for mercy. And we see this in verses 1 through 4. In verses 1 through 4, We see the cry of a desperate man. As the psalmist cries out, pleading for mercy from the depths. That is how it begins. Out of the depths, I cry. I, I make my plea. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. There is a a plea, a petition. Oh Lord, please hear me. What is it that the psalmist is pleading for? What is the petition of the psalmist? It is mercy. The psalmist pleads for mercy, but why does he need mercy? What is his concern? Why does the psalmist want mercy? We see this very clearly in verse 3. The psalmist is, is worried, desperately worried, by his own sin. He sees himself and his own iniquities, his own unrighteousness, and he says, out of the depths of my own wickedness, out of the depths of my own iniquities, O Lord, please hear me and be merciful to me. He knows he is an unrighteous man. He knows that he has sinned against God. He has broken God's law. He has been disobedient to God. And he's saying to God, God, if you count all my iniquities against me, if you see me and all of my sin, 
He's saying there's no hope. There is no hope. Who could stand? Who can come before the Lord with all of their iniquities marked, clearly identified, and stand before God? He says no one. It's a, it's a rhetorical question. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The obvious answer is no one. No one can stand before the Lord in their sin, so he has one option, and one option only. It's to plead for mercy, to plead for mercy. But before we, or, or as we consider this, we need to allow the full force of his question to penetrate our hearts. If God should mark my iniquities, could I stand before him? Does God know all your sins? He knows them all. The sins of your heart. The intent of your heart. Even if you did something outwardly good with an inward intent that was sinful, he knows. When all the rest think, wow, that was so great that that person did such and such a thing, the Lord knows you were selfish in that act. Your intent was to win their loyalty. Your intent was to get them in your debt. Your, who knows what your intents were? Our, our, our hearts are so wicked and so deceitful at times, aren't they? Am I saying everything we do always has ulterior motives? No, but sometimes. And the Lord knows those things. When we say something nice, but we kept back all the not nice things we didn't, Say, it's good that we restrained our tongues, but the Lord knows the thoughts that we restrained. And then, of course, he knows all the wicked things we have said and all the wicked things we have done. And he knows all the good things we've left undone. The Lord bids and forbids, and we disobey both. He bids and we disobey. We don't do what he has bidden that we ought to do. He forbids and we do what he has forbidden. He bids and forbids, and we disobey both. He knows our outward sins. He knows our inward sins. He knows our sins of omission, what we've left out. He knows our sins of commission, what we have done. He knows our motivations, our desires, our thoughts, our intents, our words, all of it. And if the Lord should mark your iniquities, could you stand before him? Is there any hope that we would escape his judgment And being judged, escape condemnation. There is no hope because God knows all things. Is God forgetful? No. The Lord forgets nothing because he is eternal. There is no succession of moments in God by which he could forget. There's no past for God. Oh yeah, that happened. I I struggle to remember why I opened my phone. You pick up your phone. What, What was I looking for? I forget what I thought. Two seconds ago, for God, there is no two seconds ago. He cannot forget. So all my sins are before him. All of it. He will not forget. He cannot forget. There is no hope when we consider the fullness of our iniquities, knowing that God knows it all. And the psalmist, therefore, weighed down by this incredible weight of sin, he sees himself, he envisions himself at the bottom of a deep pit, a pit that he cannot escape. And he raises his eyes up to the top of the pit and he sees some light 
up there, some brightness. And that light and that brightness that he sees is God, and he pleads, God, please have mercy upon me. Please pardon my sin. Why does he do this? Why does he go to God and ask for mercy? Verse 4 tells us. He says, because with you, there is forgiveness. With you, there is forgiveness. There is a promise of pardon. There is a promise of pardon for those who plead for mercy from God. So the psalmist knows there's one way out of this pit. One way only to escape the depths. That is to plead plead for mercy from the one with whom there is forgiveness. Because with you, there is forgiveness. What a beautiful thought for each and every one of us. With you, that is with God, the one who knows all my sin, with the judge who knows all my sin, there is also forgiveness of sins. And notice here that that the psalmist does not try to hide or minimize or conceal his sin. He doesn't try to make himself look better and then say, God, let's make a deal. You know, it wasn't so bad. I'm not so bad. I, you know, please just have mercy on me. He, no, he brings the fullness of his sin. He knows all of his iniquities are marked and he pleads for mercy knowing the fullness of his own sin or bringing the fullness of his own sin to God knowing no one can stand if God marks all those sins. He says, God, please, knowing all that I am, knowing my sin, knowing there is no hope for me apart from you with whom there is forgiveness, please forgive me. With you is forgiveness. And the psalmist says that knowing that there is forgiveness with you causes us to fear you. Not a terror, but a reverence. I have reverence, the psalmist says, for the one who has the power to forgive me. You are a judge, and you can condemn me, or you can forgive me. So I come reverently to you. I come humbly to you, because with you is forgiveness. That you may be feared. O Lord, I fear and honor you. I acknowledge your greatness, the greatness of you and the greatness of my sin. And I acknowledge the greatness of your mercy and the greatness of my sin. O Lord, please forgive me. O Lord, please wash away my sins. Be merciful to me. And I will worship you, adore you, and praise you. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, because the reverence that we have for God leads us to worship him, to bow before him, and to praise him. So in verses 1 through 4, we see the promise of pardon for those who plea for mercy. In the second place, we see the trustworthy word of God for the patient soul. The trustworthy word of God for the patient soul in verses 5 and 6. Here the psalmist continues, having made his plea, having lodged his complaint, he trusts, and he hopes, and he waits, which in the biblical vocabulary, those three things really all overlap, don't they? Trusting and hoping and waiting. 
He says in verses 5 and 6, he says, I wait for the Lord. I have, I have sent forth, I have set sail my plea for mercy. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. We have a, a hopeful waiting. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Have you ever had to wait outside an operating room? It's, it's a very unpleasant experience. When a loved one goes in for an operation, you just want, if they get anesthetic, you want anesthetic too. Put me out too until it's over, please. You just want to skip ahead to the part when it's done and you know the outcome. Or perhaps you may not have been outside an operating room. Maybe you've lain awake all night. Have you ever laid awake all night? In in our bedroom, we have a projection clock that, that projects the time onto the ceiling because for my wife, it's more comfortable for, for her to when she's in bed to be able to just open her eyes and see the time. But <laughs> if you're awake, <laughs> that's all you see. And you just see the minutes pass throughout the night. It's similar to if you're on an airplane for a long flight and there is a seat by you or perhaps a screen ahead of you that has the flight map and they don't change it off of the flight map and you just you can't help but look at it constantly and you just see the plane for six hours, for 12 hours, for 15 hours slowly crossing the world. <laughs> you think, please turn the map off. There are times where you just want it to be over and it seems like forever and ever and ever. And the psalmist compares himself to a watchman waiting for the morning. What is it a watchman wants most? For the watch to be over. <laughs> they just want the sun to rise. Let the darkness go away. Let the darkness go away. Please let the sun rise. But notice also that a watchman knows the sun will rise. Everyone who watches at night, they're not wondering if the sun's going to rise. They're just waiting for the sun to rise. And the psalmist compares himself to a watchman, and he says that he waits in a way that is, that is superior or more. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. He has a greater desire to see his hope fulfilled and a greater confidence that it will be fulfilled. Why? Because he says that he's hoping in the Lord and trusting in God's word. My soul, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. So the psalmist has committed his case to the Lord. I am wicked, exceedingly sinful. Have mercy upon me. And then he waits for the Lord and he trusts and hopes in his word. The psalmist is saying, God will fulfill his promises. God will complete his purposes. God will do all his holy will. And it is my portion to wait. It is my portion to hope. It is my portion to trust. Yes, I long for completion. Yes, I am anxious for fulfillment. But I will wait patiently because with you is forgiveness and in your word, I hope. 
So in verses 1 through 4, the psalmist expresses his, his problem. He makes his plea. In verses 5 and 6, he waits for the answer. He waits for God's forgiveness. He waits for the Lord to bring redemption. And let's see in the third place, in verses 7 and 8, the steadfast love of the Lord for the hopeful saint. The steadfast love of the Lord for the hopeful saint. In verse 7, there's a shift. It moves away from the psalmist's personal experience to an exhortation. The psalmist addresses us. He addresses Israel, and so he addresses us. Indeed, it's a command. Verse 7, O Israel, this is the shift, the turn. The psalmist addresses others. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? What do you know, psalmist? The psalmist says, here's what I know. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. All those iniquities that God marks, all that wickedness that God knows, the psalmist says, hope in the Lord because he has abundant, plentiful redemption. And all of Israel's iniquities, all of the wickedness, all of the sin, God can wash it away and wipe it away and remove it from us forever. The psalmist says, hope in the steadfast love of the Lord. Now you may think, that's nice. The psalmist addresses Israel. How does this impact me? Why would God be merciful to me? And we need to read this psalm, as with all psalms, in light of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Psalm 130 tells us in numerous ways and places that God is merciful and that God provides plentiful or plenteous or abundant redemption. And Psalm 130 tells us that God will not mark our iniquities. Is God unjust? Does the judge just say, all right, I'll let it all go? Does God simply cancel that just condemnation which our sins deserve? No. Rather, God's mercy and his forgiveness, they come to us freely and fully and plentifully and abundantly because the source of that plentiful redemption is the precious blood of Jesus Christ which he shed on the cross a precious blood that is powerful to forgive the sins of all those that trust in his name. It is the death of our Lord. It is the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of our Lord that supplies this abundant redemption and this plentiful mercy that God pours out upon a wicked world. God does not mark our iniquities. He forgives them in the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a substitute, as a sacrifice in our place. God's pardon is plentiful and sure because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to forgive the sins of all who come to him. Think of the pool that some of the invalids were dipped in in Jerusalem 
so that some could be healed and some could not be healed because they said there's no one to put me in the waters when they are stirred and so I miss out. There was healing, but it was not abundant healing. It was not plentiful healing. It was occasional healing. And so some missed. Sometimes persons have pardons, but only so many. If you go to Costco and the sample tray is empty, the sample tray is empty. Sometimes there just isn't any. I love Costco, by the way. (laughs) But even Costco runs out of things. You go to a government for a permit. Uh, We don't have any more permits for this thing. We've given them all out. Uh, Or, no, we can't grandfather that in. You need to rezone this. It's complicated dealing with governments and getting their permission or their pardon for any number of things. Even people with the best of intentions who give relief aid, they may say, we have X number of shoes, we have X number of meals, we have X number of clothing or beds. They have a limited supply of relief. Even those with the best intentions and the greatest desire to be merciful have limitations on their mercy. But when we come to God, Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, There is abundant and plentiful redemption with him because it comes from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his powerful death and his precious blood. And the scriptures boldly and beautifully proclaim that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not if you call in the next 30 seconds, Not the first 30 callers, not first come, first served, but rather all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the scriptures say that that no one who comes to him will be cast out or put to shame. To be put to shame means you go to him and it doesn't actually give what was promised. You buy something new and you're so excited for it And it doesn't work. It puts you to shame. You had so much hope built into or or, uh, placed in in an object. I want this new thing that I've bought to to work. I want it to to do what I want it to do. And then it fails. And you think, another thing. But when we go to the Lord, are we put to shame? No, the prophets say again and again, those who trust in idols are put to shame. Oh, piece of stone, make my crops plentiful. Oh, wooden carving, make my wife uh, fertile, make her able to give birth. What's wooden stone going to do for you? Oh, money, oh, dollar bills, please give me happiness. What's paper or numbers on a computer screen going to do for you? Those things put people to shame who trust in them. They're like a broken reed, we're told, where you lean on it for support and it breaks and it pierces your hand. But when we go to the Lord for mercy, what do we find? We find steadfast love, plentiful redemption, abundant mercy for the hopeful saint. And so verse 7 means that the psalmist has received an answer to his prayer. 
And having received an answer to his plea, he then addresses Israel and says, there is abundant mercy with God. There is forgiveness with him. And so Israel, hope in the Lord. With him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This promise of pardon comes to us in Jesus Christ, but it comes to us more specifically in the new covenant. I asked earlier, can God forget our sins? And in a sense, no, but in a sense, yes. Because what is the promise of the new covenant? I will remember their sins no more. It's not that God suddenly becomes forgetful. It's that they're paid for. By the blood of Jesus Christ. Why is it that he says, I will be merciful towards your iniquities and I will remember your sins no more? It's because Jesus' blood has been shed. He has suffered in body and soul in our place. And the debt has been paid. Judgment has been poured out. And we have been reconciled to God. And so we can say, God's forgotten my sins. Not thereby violating our doctrine of God as though God could be forgetful, but because Jesus has paid for them. And so we can, from a new covenant perspective, say these words, with him is plentiful redemption. His covenant assures me, and it reassures me of the forgiveness of my sins because I trust in Jesus Christ. Because I believe in Jesus Christ. Because I trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and nothing else in this world. Therefore, I know that my sins are forgiven. As we sing, perhaps you sing this hymn, Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And so we can cry out from the depths to God and plead for mercy in Jesus Christ. And he will give it to us. He turns no one away. God does not turn anyone away who comes to him in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And so if we say, hear my plea in the name of Jesus Christ, we know we are heard. If we say, be attentive to my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, we know our heavenly father hears us. And we can trust in his word, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. What word? Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, the new covenant, that is his word. We can hope in God, in Jesus Christ, and know that his steadfast love will never depart from us. And this confidence, this trust, this hope, this waiting, this patience that we have, all of it is rooted and grounded and established in the work, the finished work. Of Jesus Christ, who lived and died and lived again. Now, to bring this sermon to a conclusion, I want to return to that question of what difference did the Reformation make in the life of a Christian? In their confidence in the forgiveness of their sins, in their assurance of the forgiveness of their sins, in their assurance in their own salvation. This is one of the ways, one of the places in which the Reformation did such wonderful work to give assurance of salvation back to Christians. It's not that it gave salvation to Christians, it gave assurance of salvation back to Christians. 
There were true Christians in the church, of course. Throughout all ages, Jesus Christ has built his church. But assurance of salvation had been largely lost because of errors in doctrine. And the Reformation helped to restore that. Now I'm going to do something a bit irregular and unusual. I've prepared a a small handout of something we're going to read together. And so I'd ask Mario to quickly distribute that to you uh, and Eddie. So right now, they're going to give you a, a little piece of paper that will be useful. And as you're receiving that paper, let me explain to you what we're going to read. One of the things that I enjoy doing, um, although I often don't have time for it, is historical research, uh, mostly for Baptist history. And one of the things that I, one of the sources that I use to do my historical research are last wills and testaments. Last wills and testaments from 16th and 17th century Christians. Uh, They're not always Christians, but that's what I'm looking for. And so you read You have to read hundreds and hundreds of wills, or at least consult hundreds and hundreds of wills sometimes to find the one you're looking for. And in my various searches, I come across interesting ones that I make a note of and set aside because they're interesting. But you also get a sense as you read these wills of what their faith was like, what they believed. Because wills, older wills follow a pattern. Uh, They usually begin with the testator, the person making their last will and testament, they usually make arrangements for their soul and then for their body and then for their goods. So they'll say in the first place and they will deal with their soul and then their body and then their possessions. And when you read the kind of arrangements they make for their soul, it gives you an interesting portal, an interesting window into the faith of a Christian during that time because these are their words as they prepare themselves for death. Now, does it mean that the testator died very soon after signing their will? Not necessarily, but it was how they wanted to prepare themselves for that moment. And so what we're going to do is, first we're going to go back to the year 1534. So one side of your paper has a portion from the last will and testament of Sir Thomas Baldry, an Englishman, who signed his will in July of 1534. Notice the date. So 1517, Martin Luther is saying, hey, we need to think about some things. 1534 is only 17 years later. Not much has changed. And in in England especially, the, the grip of Rome is still very tight on the English church. So what we're going to see is the perspective of really a pre Protestant Reformation, English Christian. And I I view this man as a Christian, but one who has errors in his thinking and doctrine that are depriving him of assurance of salvation. So let's see how Sir Thomas Baldry made arrangements for his soul in July of 1534. He says, and I've, I've updated the spelling so it's much easier to read. I will that my executors, the ones who will execute his will, if you're not familiar with that language, shall find an honest and well-disposed priest to sing in the church for the space of ten years after my decease for my soul and the souls of my father and mother, and also to say three times every week during the said ten years for my soul, placebo and derige and commendations. These are uh, prayers that would be said for the dead, the order for the dead. Uh, These are official prayers. Uh, and that my executors pay every year during the said ten years to the same priest for his salary in that behalf, 
eight pounds. So eight pounds a year to pay a priest to sing for his soul and to recite certain prayers for his soul for ten years. And I will that when and as often as it shall happen, any such priest as shall sing for my soul and the souls above said, to be of evil disposition or of misliving, that then the said priest so offending be put out and removed from his said service by my said executors, and that another priest be named and admitted to the said service to sing for my soul and the souls above said. As Sir Thomas Baldry makes final arrangements for his soul, what is his hope and expectation? He expects that when, his, when he dies, his soul will be sent to purgatory. And he is using his wealth and resources to pay a priest to recite the office of the dead for him and to sing for his soul and for his parents for 10 years. But he's concerned. This priest may not be a holy man. This priest may not be reliable or trustworthy or sufficiently virtuous. So he makes provisions to ensure that if this priest is impious, he'll get replaced with a pious priest. And as a wealthy man, he's able to make these kinds of provisions. Eight pounds for ten years, 80 pounds. 80 pounds in the 1530s is a good chunk of money. And he's hoping to use that money to help himself and his parents get out of purgatory sooner. But what if you were poor? What if you were poor? So wealthy Christians make it through purgatory more quickly than poor Christians because they can pay persons to have prayers said for them for 10 years and so on and so forth. Wealthy Christians get a better experience than poor Christians. Now, let's be fair to Sir Thomas. He's concerned for his soul. He's acting based on what he's been taught. He's using his resources to make the best provisions he can. So I'm not so much criticizing Sir Thomas Baldry as the people who taught him these things. And he's placed at least the duration of his soul in purgatory in the hands of sinful priests who have to sing for him. What kind of Christian hope is this? Is this Christian hope? So what did the Reformation change? Well, let's fast forward 100 years from 1517 to 1617. What difference can it make in in 100 years? And we'll read the will of Lady Catherine Scott. By this time, 1617, the English church is very much reformed. We might say it's very Anglican still, but believe me, uh, it is vastly superior and vastly reformed uh, compared to Rome. And let's see how Lady Catherine Scott prepares her own soul, prepares herself to die by making her last will and testament in January of 1617. She says this, First, as most of all concerning to me, I bequeath my soul into the hands of God the Father, my Maker, hoping only to be saved by the merits and mercies of Jesus, my blessed Redeemer. Confirmed in that expectation, this is the language of assurance, by the testimony of the Holy Ghost, the elect's comforter. Renouncing all vain confidence in earthly things and placing my trust in God alone, which persuasion that it may prevail in me unto the end and in the end, the God of all grace grant through Jesus Christ our Lord. What arrangements does Lady Catherine Scott make for her soul? We might say she makes no arrangements. 
You might say, but Catherine, aren't you worried that your soul won't get to heaven or that it will be in purgatory for too long? Catherine says, no, I'm, I'm not worried about that. Why? She says, because I'm hoping to be saved only by the merits and mercies of Jesus, my blessed Redeemer. And she hopefully expects that her soul will enter into the Father's presence because of the merits and the mercies of Jesus Christ and only because of the merits and mercies of Jesus Christ. Why does she bequeath her soul into the hands of God the Father? Because of the merits and mercies of Jesus, her blessed Redeemer. And she is confirmed in this hope by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the comforter of the elect. The Holy Spirit comforts her soul. But Catherine, why don't you pay a priest to pray for your soul, to sing for your soul? She says, I renounce vain confidence in earthly things and trust in God alone. Money makes no difference here. She's Lady Catherine Scott. She was wife of a a wealthy man and had a large estate and, and home. She has great resources, but they make no difference to her with regard to her soul. But Catherine... Don't you have any doubts? She she prayed that the God of all grace would sustain her faith through Jesus Christ unto the end and in the end. So even with regard to the sustaining of her own faith, she's praying that God will do this. She doesn't even trust in her own faith. She trusts in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. So what did the Reformation change? What did it do? One of the ways to see this vividly is to ask a 1534 Christian and a 1617 Christian what their dying hope is. And I, I again, want to be as charitable as possible to Sir Thomas Baldry, who would ultimately expect to arrive at heaven through what Jesus Christ has done, and therefore Jesus is his ultimate hope. But his assurance of salvation has been denied him. And his, his understanding of what's going to happen to his soul has been awfully distorted and contorted. He would be pleasantly surprised to die and to be in glory and and say, I'm with the Lord? Yes, Sir Thomas Baldry. Catherine Scott had that assurance in her lifetime because of the work of the Spirit of God through the Protestant Reformation to restore the faithful teaching of the Scriptures. Now, if we think about Psalm 130, it seems to me that Sir Thomas Baldry still sees himself in the pit, hoping for a redemption someday, whereas Lady Catherine Scott sees herself freed from the pit and on the brink of enjoying the light of heaven by the merits and mercies of Jesus, her blessed Redeemer. And we see Sir Thomas Baldry distracted by whether or not, by the goodness or lack thereof in a priest. Whereas Lady Catherine Scott is not distracted, but focused on the perfection of Jesus Christ, her blessed Redeemer. And Psalm 130 gave such comfort to Martin Luther for these same reasons. He said, I don't need to trust in priests or a priestly system on earth. I have a priest in heaven And Martin Luther, therefore, would read this and be freed from the depths and know that his iniquities were not marked by God because with God there is forgiveness. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, 
For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. But before we conclude, I have to ask you, many of you I I know are brothers and sisters in Christ, but I don't know all of you, and I have to ask you whether you have made arrangements for your soul. Many of these last wills and testaments have a refrain, a common phrase that they use, which is, for nothing is so uncertain as life, nor as certain as death. They usually say that. They say, I therefore make my last will and testament knowing that nothing is so uncertain as life, nor nothing so certain as as death. Death is a certainty. Life is an uncertainty. Therefore, they make arrangements. They make provision. Death is the common fate of all which none can escape, a door through which all must pass. Our bodies will remain on earth, but our souls will enter that invisible realm, a realm divided between heaven above and hell below. And where one's soul will rest depends entirely on how we make arrangements for our souls, so to speak. Would you buy your funeral plot and set your house in order, and manage your financial assets, all of which are things that will deteriorate and decay, but fail to see to the safety and salvation of your soul? And would you be so foolish as to think, I am yet young. I am young. I have years. I have days. I have time. I have life. I have vivacity. I have vitality. I have longevity. I can tell you this, that in historical research, there have been plenty of spinsters and plenty of bachelors who also made their last wills and testaments, and plenty of children who too were buried in graveyards. Life is uncertain. Death is certain. And Psalm 130 teaches us that for those in the pit, there is but one escape. One way to keep from sinking through the mud of that pit into the fires of hell itself. And that is to call out, to cry to God for pardon, because with God there is forgiveness and plentiful redemption for all who call upon the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And I ask you, is that enough? Is God in the flesh, Jesus crucified and risen from the dead, is that enough for the safety and salvation of our souls? Are the merits and mercies of Jesus Christ sufficient to save our souls now and our bodies then on the day of redemption? The Christian says, Amen, Hallelujah, Yes. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is forgiveness, and with him there is plentiful, abundant redemption. So renounce all vain confidence in earthly things, to borrow the phrase from Lady Catherine, and hope in the Lord, waiting for him, hoping in him, trusting in him. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And let this be our prayer, which persuasion that it may prevail in us unto the end and in the end. The God of all grace grant through Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for your word. 
which assures us and reassures us of the forgiveness of our sins in the precious blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our great and glorious God in the flesh. How we thank you that you know all our iniquities, but you do not mark them. You have covenanted with us that you will remember them no more because they have been forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we thank you because we see ourselves in that pit when we are only in ourselves. But we also thank you that we see ourselves in Jesus Christ and therefore out of the pit, freed from the pit, delivered from the darkness and the depths. We thank you that with you there is forgiveness, that with you there is steadfast love, with you there is mercy, with you there is plentiful, abundant redemption. And we pray that you would please help us to cling to this assurance. Send your Holy Spirit, our comforter, to reassure us of this, to remind us that we are your children and that our sins are forgiven. And, O oh Lord, help us, therefore, because of what you have done in us and for us, to be all the more diligent in our obedience, all the more diligent in our sanctification, putting sin to death and obeying all that you have commanded us. Oh Lord, may we not sin against light. May we not sin against grace and mercy. May we rather serve you as we have, as we have read. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. May we fear you with reverence, adoration, and obedience for all that you have done for us. And we pray that you would encourage our hearts. Lastly, we pray that you would not allow any here to leave with their hearts numbed to the call of the gospel, that they would not leave this place disregarding what has been proclaimed and declared to them, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Rather, we pray that they would have no rest, no rest at all in their souls until and unless they embrace Jesus Christ by faith and in him receive perfect full, free, and final salvation. Oh Lord, we ask that you would do these things for your glory, and we ask them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.